Welcome to Talk Time with Max Contact, the podcast where we talk about the latest contact center and customer experience, industry news, and insights. Join us as we welcome industry experts, discuss actionable strategies you can apply to your business, and help professionals like you on your path to long-term career progression and success. I'm your host, Sean McIver. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talk Time with Max Contact. I'm your host, Sean McIver. I'm delighted to be joined today by Lee Horton, who is a business improvement coach who prides himself on helping people and teams confidently deliver change. You've had a very unique journey, Lee, um, to get where you are today, which includes, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I believe it's five children's books. You've had a bouncy castle business. You've done DJing dressed as a monkey. And all of these things have kind of uh, shaped your career from data input administrator to co-founding Get Knowledge, which is your business improvement company. And in fact, you help even more people in business by providing real examples and kind of practicable approaches on the Business Problem Solved podcast. Have I missed anything key critical there, Lee? <laughs> no, no, first of all, thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you today, Sean. I think that as a CV goes, that makes me the perfect person to talk about leadership and improvement. Surely somebody who dressed as a monkey and played songs to uh, to people who were to uh, intoxicated on the weekend. No, I think you've covered everything. Oh, you've covered the majority of things there. I'm somebody who has, I guess, just, I don't like saying no to things. And that's just led me down so many, so many different paths. I was scared of heights when I was younger, and then four years ago, skydived from 15,000 feet. I've always wanted to learn the secrets of comedy. I love comedians, and I've been on two stand-up comedy courses, and I've dabbled in stand-up comedy as well, but there's no jokes. There'll be a a show today. I'm just somebody who was, I just love learning, and what I've got is a unique journey that allows me to take all of the different lessons I've got from the eclectic mix of things that I've done and really help share what we do and get knowledge as well. So yeah, no, so I think you've covered everything there. And there's probably more I could say, but I think I will we'll leave that there's enough. Excellent. So I'm gonna kind of start there at your kind of C V of feats and wonders, shall we say. So you're now a very successful business improvement coach, co-founding a business. Like there's no easy way to say this, but I suppose how did you end up here because looking at your as you said your many varied cv to where you are now that journey doesn't jump off the page so can you talk to me about that a bit yeah absolutely so back in 2006 when i was so i was a team leader at the time and i kind of i got so my leader at the time suggested that they were going to go through this big change program and they thought that i would be suitable for it so that's when my change journey started back in 2006 and i and at the side of that, so my dad had always DJed and done all of those things. So I, I had a, like a parallel career. By day, I was a change guy in public. So by night, I was the DJ and doing pubs and parties. And because I just love learning and love growing things and stuff, I wanted to be the best change person I could be. But I also wanted to be the best entertainer I could be as well, which then led me to so DJing five nights a week, having bouncy castles out. And I had um, eight bouncy castles, two slides, gladiator duel, bouncy boxing, and four pairs of sumo suits, two of which were children's. That was my little sales pitch. So I did, I did that at weekends and, and in the evenings and an improvement during the day. And it got to a stage where there was just not enough hours in the day for me and I needed to make a, a choice. 
And rightly or wrongly, I looked at my dad. He was about 60 years old at the time. Um, coming in at 2 o'clock on a Sunday morning, his knees were a little bit sore. He'd not spent much time with his family. We couldn't do things at weekends. And I thought, oh, that's not really what I want to be doing at that point in time. The thing that I loved, the thing that I absolutely loved about the DJing and about playing music and entertaining people was those more the smiles on people's faces. That when you press play on a track, because it wasn't vinyl, it was CDs and then MP3s, when you press, and then you see swarms of people coming to the dance floor, bouncing up and down, enjoying themselves, having the time of their life, that gave me a feeling. That gave me a feeling inside. And the only other time that I felt that feeling is when I've been like leading change and, and seeing people actually realise that change is within their gift as well and they can actually make things better. That gives me that feeling as well. And so that's why I chose the day job instead of the evening job. And what I've done, I've just thrown myself into that for the last 16 years. Yeah, it's culminated in co-founding Get Knowledge about five years ago. But there was a, I'm going to overshare now, if you don't mind, So because there was a pivotal moment five years ago on the 5th of July 2018. I watched my best mate take his final breath, took his final breath in the hospice at the age of 39. And I spent the night with him that night. And I went outside and sat down on the bench outside St. Catherine's Hospice in Preston. Some beaming down on me and thinking, you're a fraud, Lee. You're, you tell your kids every single morning they can be whatever they want to be, but you're not what you want to be. You're still employed. Yeah, you're doing change and stuff, but you're giving up like the, your love, which was the music and the entertainment and stuff. And you're not being what everything you want to be. And I thought back to, so my best mate was called Chris. He's called Chris. And he shared with me three life lessons. And it was with those three life lessons that have really, I guess, have been a staple part of my life for the last five years. And that's what I attribute my growth, my development, and my mission to now fundamentally. Because I sat on that bench thinking, you're not everything you want to be, and things have got to change. And so I thought about the three life lessons that he shared with me really, really quickly. I'll share these with you. Because when Chris was told there was nothing else that medical science could do for him, I was the first person to see him when the consultant left the room. And we had a chat and stuff. And he said, I'm, I can extract me, I'm going to extract my pension and all of this, this stuff. He said, you've always wanted your own business. Let me give you a few grand and let me set you up. And I was like, no, Chris, I don't want any, any money. That's your kids' trust money. I said, but what I would absolutely love is three lessons through your eyes. Now you're reflecting and or now your perspective on life has changed because the minute that doctor said that's it time's going to be up his perspective on life changed the little things no longer matter and i saw this change in him and I, and I wanted to understand when i wanted him to really reflect on his 39 years and share with me what the three most important things were to him and he went to his first words out of his mouth when i asked him for the, to share the three life lessons he went Womanetly, or words to that effect, I wish you'd just asked for the money. That's far easier to give you. Anyway, I'm so grateful that he really thought about it. So like a couple of weeks have passed, I got to see him in the hospital and said, right, I've got the first one. So when him and his ex-partner were splitting up, he said he tried to be somebody he thought she wanted him to be. Didn't make him happy, didn't make her happy. And they still ended up splitting up. So he said, no matter what, just always be yourself. Uh, a couple of weeks after that, I went to see him. He went, do you know what? He said, uh, Nash, who's one of our other mates, rings him up at 12 o'clock every single day. He says, you come and see me when you're not working. He said, um, second lesson, make good friends, because you never know when you're going to need them or when they're going to need you. And then literally a couple of weeks before he passed, we went to the Etihad Stadium, Manchester, the home of Manchester City, to watch the Foo Fighters play. Bought eight tickets previously. 
eight of us went, him and his ex-partner and, and two boys in one car, four of us and another. On the way back from that, his youngest boy asked, because we support Liverpool, could we go to Anfield for a tour? Because he'd never been on a tour of Anfield with his dad. So that was on a Thursday. We arranged a private tour on the Sunday. We went. It was an amazing, amazing day. And on the way home from that, Chris was sat next to me in the car. Uh, the three boys, my boy, who was four at the time, Chris's two boys, 14 and 16, sat behind him. And he said, uh, he said, how many times could we have done this? He said, yeah, loads, Chris. He said, well, why do we wait to the time? I was wheeled around in a wheelchair. Why do we wait to the time? And I couldn't get up and sit on those same seats that you did. He said, act now because time's limited. And those are the three lessons. So fast forward to the 5th of July, 2018, sat on the bench thinking I was a fraud. Always be yourself, make good friends. And time's limited. It was ringing through my ears. And those really have been... I've doubled down on those three things for the last nearly five years now to really, really hit home and what they mean to me and learn what they mean to me because Chris had his own reasons for it. So like, just a little example, I got tattoos before Chris passed and stuff. So I got tattoos, started at two and a half inches down my wrist. And the reason why it was two and a half inches down my wrist because I was conscious and worried what people would think of the bald guy with tattoos. Would they really trust him to improve the business? So I've not always been myself. So I've been trying to consciously be myself i used to have a work persona and a home persona and now i'm trying to be the same person but i also think in leadership and for lead leaders need to create environments where people can just be themselves and they can be themselves as well i was remember speaking to a leader not so long ago and i said to him so when was the last time that you showed some emotion i don't show emotion so i'm at work i was like oh and now I just think about it when was the last time you actually showed emotion home or working oh yeah it was uh, around the dinner table with the kids and I got really quite angry at them. So, all right, okay. And then I just thought, I sat back and thought, this is ridiculous. This, we need to help people just show emotions not negative, but emotions positive and if it's channeled in the right thing. And so we at Get Knowledge, a company, we champion people in the improvement equation. And fundamentally what that means is people work processes, people use technology, people lead people. Leaders are people, customers are people, and so it's a people-centric approach to business improvement. So how did I get to where I am? It was through a lot of randomness, through losing my best mate, through understanding these three lessons and doubling down on those for the last five years. I've got tattoos on my arm of the three lessons on my arm. I've got a ginger kid walking up the steps at 10 to 8 in the morning. He gave me a ring that I wear on my right hand like a wedding band, and it's engraved on the inside of that. Make friends, be yourself, and time's limited. So those three things are kind of like David Brent-esque, like joined them together, Chris's three lessons, and my 17 years in leadership and in change and now, really, I believe I understand the not the secret of, but like what's important about leadership and about change. But it, it's allowing me to speak about Chris, even though he's not here. So he is still here with me. So I apologize. I mean, that might be a slight digression, might not be the answer you were expecting. But that, uh, Sean, is pretty much how I've ended up here through that randomness. Wow. First things first, thank you for sharing that. It's an incredible story. And I think it frames very, very well your ethos and your outlook on the way in which you approach things. I kind of almost feel bad segueing into the, the more business aspects of it, but I'm wondering if we can leverage some of Chris's insights as we talk about these things. Absolutely. So I guess the first door I want to open is explain your model on how leadership behaviors influence employee engagement which in turn influences customer satisfaction, targets results. Like, how did you develop the model? Is there any research that supports it? Firstly, in fact, thank you for the question, because 
this is something that we've observed from the sidelines and also now we're trying to influence. So when we think about improvement, when we think about leadership, when we think about change, consultants largely have been like 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it was all about the targets of the business. It was all about moving the dial on some either profit or on cost, on something, on some business target. And then about 10 to 15 years ago, customer satisfaction and customer experience became an industry because people had made the scientific link between satisfying your customers and revenue and targets. And so happy customers equals revenue growth and all of that stuff. That became the playground that people wanted to explore. And then five to 10 years ago, probably close to five years ago, employee engagement had a light shone on it. And a lot of studies were developed. And, and, and I guess the pandemic brought this home as well, is that so employee engagement drives customer satisfaction. So how you are, how your people are, fundamentally drives how your customers feel. And I remember a number of years ago, I was working in an organization. The call center had to ring, and it was, it was a logistics organization. So the call center had to ring the couriers, the people delivering, and this call handler was a little bit challenged. So they had a customer on the phone, and they were trying to work out where the parcel was. So they were really friendly and polite to the customer. And then they'd ring up the courier, and then they'd be quite aggressive going because they just wanted an answer. They just wanted telling where the parcel was. And then the, the guy on the other phone was like, I don't know where it is. It was four weeks ago, last Wednesday. I can't remember all of my deliveries. And go, that's not helping me. And then they went going back to the customer. And so then a bit more aggrieved. And then because they didn't have a resolution, the next customer that rang up, they were they'd taken some of that frustration into the next call. So business targets are driven by customer satisfaction. Customer satisfaction is driven by employee engagement. And employee engagement is largely, I believe, we believe, driven by leadership behavior. And nicely, these four levels spell out the word best. And we believe to have the best operation, the best organization, you need to start with the B and not the T. You need to spell best properly. So leadership behaviors. Leaders are people and how they turn up every single day, what they think about can influence how their employees, how many people, I always ask this in, this in a workshop, I always say to people, I said, um, how many of you can think about a manager that has wanted you to perform at your best, but has made you feel your worst? And as leaders, we have such a task on our hands to get the most from our people, but it, a lot of that comes from how we need to show up and how we need to turn up every single day. So our model, is it spells best. And we encourage everybody starts at the B, understand how leaders turn up. Leadership behavior is developed by the leader's thinking. So thinking, it happens internally first and manifests itself in the outside world. So truly the best model is influence leaders thinking, get them to change their behaviors, influence employee engagement, satisfy the customers and achieve the business targets. And what we find is that different organizations want to start at different levels of that. But what we try to do is join the dots for them to actually show that just how they are, how they are set up, how their system, and what I mean by system, I don't mean computer system, but I just mean all of the different component parts of the organization, how that is all fundamentally set up is key to truly achieving success, whatever that success be. Okay. So I like the way in which you kind of set out the bricks, if you like, of the leadership and the engagement and the employee engagement, the customer satisfaction. I like the way that you layered those bricks. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it resonates with what previous guests have spoken about as well. 
I'm going to throw a fact out there, and then I'm going to follow up with my question. So according to a recent, a recent Forbes article, 63% of employees surveyed do not trust their leadership. Through that lens, what is the Dave problem and how big an issue do you feel that is in today's contact center landscape? Yeah, who is Dave? <laughs> so I think that's a really fascinating figure and it doesn't surprise me. There's a big disconnect between leaders and their people and the more levels of the hierarchy there are the bigger the disconnect is and i said before during my introduction that i'd uh, i'd been on a number of comedy courses and the reason why i wanted to go on a comedy course is because i believe comedians make us feel something emotionally and take us on an emotional journey far quicker and faster than any other profession and i wanted to understand whether there was a secret in that and so Day one of me, the very first comedy course I went on, Jay Sodegar, the course, he's the tutor. He said, what's the most important thing in comedy? And the seven of us that were on the course shouted words to the effect of jokes. And he went, no, 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 that's the third most important thing in comedy. That's your material. That's the third most important thing in comedy. And I believe that leaders fundamentally focus on their material. The material for a leader is the process and all of that stuff. The course then went on and went the second most important thing in comedy there's two lines that you give there's a setup and there's a punchline and what you're supposed to do vary your attitude between the two things to signpost it and so the audience knows so you might be like really happy and jolly delivering your setup and then really angry delivering your punchline because then to signpost to the audience they don't need to know that what you said is funny something's changed and so now i need to laugh and what we don't necessarily do as leaders, is very our performance to everybody that's in front of us. We typically perform in the way that we like to be performed to, not fully appreciating. Everybody is different. Some people like the information and the data in the background. Some people like to know, tell me what I need to do, when I need to do it. Some people need to know the impact on the person. Some people need to know, just have images and a bit of comedy and a bit of humour. And so everybody in front of us is different. And the second most important thing in comedy, and I think the second most important thing in leadership, is purely around varying our performance based on the person that's in front of us. I think, I'm not sure whether it's attributed to George Bernard Shaw, but there's a, a quote on communication that's something like, the art of communication is what has been heard and not what has been said. And I think there's, we could have a whole massive long conversation about that because I think when we say the words, when I'm speaking these words, these words are based on my experience of these words and the meaning of these words. Uh, you, Sean, might have a different interpretation, different understanding and a different meaning. So like problems, conflict, challenge are all positive words to me, but a lot of people see those as, as negative words and have different connotations. to it. So second most important thing in comedy and also leadership, I believe, is performance. The most important thing, and this I'm going to answer the Dave question with this one as well, the most important thing in comedy is connection. So how connected you are to your audience. But the most important thing in leadership is your connection to your people. So who is Dave is a quote that we have heard when so we go and we spend time with people at all various different levels and then we speak to the leaders and we sometimes then give a credit well give credit to the whoever has said whatever they've said and a leader has said who's Dave at a point because they've not actually known the person that we were actually talking about who, who shared some stuff because the level of connection that leaders have got with their people is not so just to label the point in, in terms of you've been a star in a nativity play in the past haven't you yeah guilty as charged yeah Perfect. 
Yeah, amazing. So I, I love this as an example. So you think about a nativity play, right? So in a nativity play, little kids stood on, on those wooden benches, adults sat in like in, in tiny little seats in the audience there. And let's think about the material of a nativity play. It's basic, it's simple, it's ropey at best, right? So the material, the third most important thing, is not brilliant. Um, then you think about the performance. You've got kids stood facing the wrong way, singing the wrong words, saying the wrong things, wiping the noses with the sleeves. You've got teachers telling them the words that they've got to say, all different types. And let's talk about the outfits. You can't tell whether the sheep or whether the clouds. You can't tell any of these things. So the performance is, um, so if the material is ropey, the performance is dodgy. But at the end of it, right, the teacher will stand up and they'll, give a little bow or a little curtsy and then the little kids will stand up off the benches, face the right way and then bow and you turn around to look at the audience, people in floods of tears, high-fiving each other, declaring it's the best thing that they've ever seen before in their life. Absolute nonsense. No, it was not the best thing that they've ever seen in their life. The reason why they say it's the best thing that they've ever seen in their life is because the level of connection that they've got with the little people on stage is such that it doesn't matter about the material. It doesn't matter about the performance. The connection is key. So who is Dave should never be a question that is asked because you should have levels of connection. If you want people to perform at their best, then you've got to know the people. To know the people, you've got to know what makes them tick and how best to speak to them, how best to perform to them, to engage them fully. So yeah, so the most important thing in comedy is connection. The most important thing in leadership is connection. This is why it's the people game we're in. This is why the bottom of the best model is behaviors. And I'll pause there for a breath. So I'll challenge back on that one just briefly a little bit, because I like everything you're saying. It resonates with me. But I remember reading that in general within business, people can remember it something between 100 and 125 names. They'll store that information when they're interacting with people on a regular basis. Is there a scaling limit within a business beyond which point it's unreasonable to have what I'm going to refer to now as the Dave expectation. And actually, it's very difficult to know everybody within the organization. And at that point, by necessity, in fact, it then leans more heavily on that hierarchy to a degree. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's a really fair assessment. And, and this for me, because we've got one of, I guess, our core product is called Sustainable Performance Excellence. And, and that fundamentally is about creating teamwork, engagement, and better communication. And in any organization, there are teams. And fundamentally, an organization is made up of teams of teams. But a lot of teams work in, in isolation. You have islands of excellence in a sea of mediocrity because you've got some high-performing teams, but not, not all of the teams are working together to achieve the same purpose. So when we're thinking about diluting the Dave effect, we'll just call it that as like, so every, should a CEO know everybody's name in a 1,000 person organization? That's a nice to have. It's a nice to have, but not everybody who works in that organization will want the CEO to know their name. And I think that's something that's important. But I think those people there to make it, so in any organization, you typically have 10% of people really high performing, 10% of people really low performing, and 80% in the middle doing a, a good day's a good day's work. Okay. And I think what's important is that you've got the right levels of communication and engagement to make sure that all of the teams working together are highlighting those people. And Dave, if Dave's got an idea, Dave needs to be recognized for that idea. 
And, and that's why it's important that the CEO knows Dave, because if Dave's coming up with an idea, then he or she should know about Dave. And I think if you've got the right tiered communication structure, the right escalation mechanism and cascade mechanism, then that's when everybody will know Dave, not just Dave's team will know Dave. And I think that's what the difference is for me. It's not about the like having a register and going down every, and, and like testing yourself. Do you know, I mean, I'm going to age myself now. So there's like that program years and years ago called You Bet, I think it was, where people have like amazing memories and stuff and they recall it. And we don't necessarily need CEOs and people on the board and, and senior leaders to memorize everybody's name, but they need to be able to know the people that are working with and those that are making a contribution and knowing what makes people tick. And, and yes, the lower down the, the organization you get, the more familiarity and the bigger connection you will build with the teams. And for me, the team leader needs to fundamentally really know the people. And that's where you need to start. You need to start with you understanding what makes your team tick. I wrote an article a few, probably a few months ago now that says, just because your team works doesn't mean you've got teamwork. And there's fundamental differences in those two things. You might hit your targets, but it doesn't necessarily mean your team is actually working in terms of the team. So that's what I think is important. But yeah, completely valid point on the, not everybody needs to know Dave. Excellent. No, thank you for that. And I think that was one of the critical things for me, because I remember reading that. And as you were talking through and explaining that lands, that makes a lot more sense. You also mentioned sustainable performance excellence. And I guess through the lens of employee engagement, I would ask, what is that? How do we embed that really effectively within a culture like an industry such as the contact center? How do we go about kind of driving that? Yeah, it's people-centric, right? So people, the, some of the common pitfalls that people make when they're delivering change is they go, change is bottom-up, but it's not. It's both. It's bottom up on this top down, right? So as a leader, you need clarity of expectation and direction and where we're trying to get to. You need to have clear communication. And these things need to, and clear expectations need to be set based on where it is you're trying to get to. But then bottom up, once you've set those things, bottom up, then allow people to develop the things that are required to get you to where it is that you're trying to get to. So sustainable performance excellence fundamentally is a cascade. Is, I guess it's a, maybe over a, a three, four-month period. It's a cascade of key um, elements, key, I'm going to call them improved operational excellence tools, daily meetings or huddles, visual management or sensory management, because I think there's, there's much more than just visual management. I think we need to be inclusive of everybody. So there's the sensory management, there's standards and expectations, there's problem solving, there's coaching, there's habits and behaviors, there's celebrating success, there's skills and versatility, there's workload leveling and things. So there's all of these things that get delivered. So within sustainable performance excellence, these get delivered week on week. And what happens is they're cascaded down from the senior leader of the department function or CEO, depends upon the side, size, to their leadership team single element in a single week with the background, the reason why it's important, what problem we're trying to solve, and then how they go about it. But then with some clear expectations that are set. So like by this time next week, we will all be having a daily meeting. But they'll not be really prescriptive on everything that needs to be in that. They're just trying to create and start the habits and start people behaving in the way that they want. And then week two, you then build on that and you might introduce some sensory management or visual management. And then week three, 
your some standards and expectations. Week four, some problem solving, and, and then week five, some coaching. And that, for me and for us, is how it becomes sustainable because you're doing it based on habits. Our definition of culture is a sum of all of the habits that exist with an organisation. If you want to change the culture, you've got to change the habits. And if you want to change the habits, then well, you need to pick a habit because to just change everything is massive. So we start small. I'm going to jump in on that one. Can you repeat that? Can you repeat what that definition of business culture is? Because I really like that. The definition of culture for us is the sum of all the habits that exist. I like that. And Because everything we do is habitual. It's how we... How we be, our behaviours is how we are and our habits are what we do. So often leaders will walk past a piece of rubbish on the floor and that's then just expected and, and accepted as the new habit and it's making everybody able to do that. It has to be from a habitual perspective. So if you start small, just getting used to the leaders, speaking to their people on a daily basis and then the week after introduce something else and then maybe a performance measure, a me- metric, and then they're talking to them about that, asking them for their ideas, what got in their way yesterday, what could be preventing, what felt uncomfortable yesterday. And then three or four weeks later on, you're then talking about problem solving. But what you've done for the first three, four weeks is start to uncover, become comfortable talking about the things that are getting in your way. And then you talk about problem solving and how you can overcome it. You don't launch everything at everybody because you're trying to change something. You're trying to change um, the the habits and behaviors of people. And that's got to be done gradually. And I've just recently re-listened to Charles Druig's book, The Power of Habits. And in that, he talks about the, the habit loop, cue, routine, reward. And so the cue is the trigger for the activity, the routine is the act of, and the reward is how you feel afterwards. And if you continuously do that, then you get craving to continue to do that. But it all starts with a, from a place of belief. You need to believe that the journey that you're going to go on is possible. And if people believe if it's a small enough change, if it's too far into the distance and you're expecting this whole operational excellence thing to just turn on like that, not happen. Too far away, too far away. So the, fundamentally, that's what sustainable performance excellence is. Thank you for that. That was fantastic. Again, I'll come back to it around that piece around habits, build culture. I think that's so critical. And I think it feeds into one of my other thoughts. I'm conscious of time here, but it feeds into one of my other thoughts that I've been reflecting on recently and was actually mentioned in a webinar that I was on recently as well. And that's around people think that things like culture shift is something that's seismic. And I don't think it is. I think culture is more of a very gradual thing and it's the culmination of many, many small changes that are actually in and of themselves very easy to do that actually then drive them much bigger changes. Think about systems in a contact center or a system in any business. If you wanted to replace that, that's an enormous undertaking. And actually, maybe the better question initially is to ask, am I getting the best from X? Can I make improvements to Y? And I think that that's really valuable. Absolutely. So just on that point, really, really quickly, there's a lot of CEOs that go in and they talk, they go into businesses and they talk about becoming more profitable or satisfying the customers and things like that. The way to achieve all of these things is to identify the keystone habits that are going to have the biggest influence and change. In a manufacturing plant and, and supply, it's relatively straightforward. If you focus on safety, get everybody looking after each other, then everything else will happen because people will take pride in their environment. People will will then start looking after each other and then performance will come from that. And it's about finding those keystone habits within the contact center. And I think the keystone habit is leaders to engage their people. 
leaders engaging their people on a more frequent basis, on a human level, to really connect. And if we can get leaders to truly connect and then become coaches, which comes afterwards, if we can do that, then people are going to know that they're cared, that they're cared for. People are going to start to trust their leaders. Leaders are going to start to become more humble and more vulnerable and share some of those things as well. So I would definitely just encourage all leaders in contact centers to work on the, the habit of engagement. What does that mean to you? How do you know your people are engaged? How can you engage your people more? And it just simply comes by asking better questions, I think. So yeah, so that's just to build on the, the, the habit bit. No, thank you for that. I'm conscious of time, but I've got time for two very, very short, fun questions. Bit of a plug opportunity here. You also are a podcast host. On the page for your podcast, you include like almost a disclaimer that your podcast will challenge the way people think. So if those in business could change their minds about one thing after listening to your podcast, which is called Business Problem Solved Podcast, what would you want that one thing to be? Okay, great question. Thank you for that. The first thing that's come to my mind is I believe there's the two most important metrics in any organization that are not measured. Number one, the number of thoughts that we're creating in our people. And then number two, the lead time between the thoughts to a conversation to action taking place. And if I can can create or challenge people thinking, and are they actually truly, genuinely doing what they need to do to help their people think more things to help you get to where you want to get to, then those are the thoughts I want people to take away, I guess, because that's the other one will come after that. But yeah, that's the first one. Challenge people's thinking. Uh, and get... Really, really quickly. I've got my mind is going all over the place. But engagement for me is three things. Engage with the heads, the hearts, and the hands of our people. Typically in contact center world, we engage our hands of our people because they're on the phones. So physically they're engaged. The heads are engaged only in the work, not in how to do the work better. And the hearts, a lot of people love contact center contact center world. And so some people do are engaged in the heart, but are you truly engaged in the heads, the hands, and the hearts of your people? And are you truly engaged in the heart, the heads, by getting them to think new thoughts every single day? I really like that as an ethos. But yeah, that's fantastic. Heads, hands, and hearts. I can get behind that one. I've actually written that one down. That's brilliant. Okay, final question. I'm not even sorry. I'm not going to preamble this at all. You were a DJ. You spent many, many years listening to music. What would your karaoke song be? <laughs> okay, if we were out in Manchester one night or Liverpool one night and and we went into a bar, probably something like Kings of Leon, Sex on Fire or Killers and Mr. Brightside, I would love those because they are the songs that made the people smile when I pressed play on that. If we're on holiday somewhere, I would probably do like a bit of a Frank Sinatra number because it'd be a little bit of a different feel. So those are the two things I would go. But if you fancy a night out or a holiday with me, Sean. Excellent. Thank you for that. Again, I'll note those ones down because those would be on my list as well. Listen, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. However, I would like to take a moment and just say thank you ever so much, Lee Horton, just from the past. Yeah, what a great conversation from Get Knowledge and the insights you've offered. And again, just to call it out, being so vulnerable with what you have shared as well and being as open and as clear on what drives you and everything, that's been hugely valuable. So I cannot thank you enough for your time today, Lee. Thank you ever so much. No, honestly, Sean, it's been an absolute pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you so much for doing what you do and hopefully we'll get the opportunity to chat again. Absolutely, I'd very much like that. Talk Time is brought to you by Max Contact. 
To find out more about Max Contact and how our customer engagement software can help you and your teams provide smarter customer experiences, visit maxcontact.com and book your personalized demo today. Be sure to search Talk Time with Max Contact in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and leave us a positive rating to help other like-minded individuals join the conversation. Finally, before you go, never miss a future episode by clicking the subscribe button and turning on notifications. On behalf of the team here at Max Contact, thanks for listening.